Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Here's a thought. Um, Maybe you don't write music, and maybe you should, and I don't mean that Let's be honest, there's a significant portion of this in the room that maybe we should write music, but it should never be played <laughs> or sung outside of our shower or our bedroom. But, but why don't you still write those songs? Why don't you still write something? Why don't you, how do you worship God? If it's just in this gathering here, then I think that's, this is a corporate gathering where we come together to worship. But worship is supposed to be something that fills our lives in general. And I I would just encourage you, if you don't journal, maybe you should journal. Maybe you should write a song that never gets published, but it's important to you. I've written a whole bunch that will never be heard by anybody. (laughs) And that's a good thing. But they have meaning to me, and they actually link to different times in my life. It's very relevant to our conversation, I I think you'll see as we go along here today. Um, And also to the title of the series, which is entitled, More Than a Song. And I'll discuss that in a little bit of time, but if you just walked in, we are exploring different songs that the church has sung. There's a rich history that is unique to Christianity in church music. It's very unique in that sense. There's nothing else out there that quite has that, especially over the centuries. We began with um, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a song that's 500 years old, written by the original Martin Luther, okay, that stamped the Reformation and attempt to reform and revive the church. Um, We then went into In Christ Alone, which is a type of creedal song, a a song that talks about beliefs and what we believe in declaring those beliefs. We discussed the character of God with holy, holy, holy. Then we went to It Is Well with My Soul, a song that has to talk about the way God comforts us, but also a fortitude that the Christian has in in times of difficulty and challenge. Last week we went back to the character of God again with Great Is Thy Faithfulness, one of the old classic hymns, but with an updated twist in it. And today... I want to talk to you um, as more than a song about a very different song. In fact, it is probably, um, I think it's the oldest song that is sung in Christianity and has been consistently sung and and used for probably roughly 1,400, maybe 1,800 years, um, possibly longer or so. Um, I'm going to give you a little clue to this because there was actually not a contemporary version of the song, but the title was that. And we'll see how many of you can name uh, this tune. So here we go. Okay, it was the 80s, okay. 
give them a break on that. Um, how many of you recognize the song? Okay. How many of you are aware that it's rooted in an 1,800-year-old Christian song? A few of you. The title of the song is Kiri, or Kiri, and its longer version is Kiri Eleison, is the original thing. Um, when I heard the song as a kid, I loved the song when I was younger, um, but I never understood the lyrics. I honestly, truly thought that they were saying, carry a laser. <laughs> and to this day, I still just find myself, you know, I took it very seriously, okay? Um, it was only years later as I actually got into the lyrics that I'm realizing, oh my gosh, this is not carry a laser, it's carry a laison down the road that I must travel. Um, it's a secular song. It was by a group called Mr. Mister. Um, they only had one or two hits out there, uh, but they were popular. Um, uh, Mr. Mister's actually quoted another song, if you ever hear, Hey Soul Sister. At one point in time, they talk about Mr. Mister on the radio, kind of a throwback to, uh, to that uh, uh, era. Um, the leader of the band and his cousin uh, wrote the song, and they were actually raised within the church. They were both Christians. And so the song, while it's secular, totally secular in its nature, is basically saying, Kyrieleison, down the road I must travel. Well, the term Kyrieleison is um, Lord have mercy. And it is um, part of, a, of the original song that would have gone this way, and it's rooted in what's called uh, the Jesus Prayer. And the Jesus Prayer is um, rooted in the idea of, of saying, Lord, have mercy on us. It says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the Jesus Prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a very, very old uh, um, prayer. And it's rooted in Scripture, as we'll see in just a moment of time. Um, the Kyrie Eleison is part of the Catholic Mass. I think it's the first thing usually uh, launched from the beginning. And it's interesting because it's part of a Latin Mass, but it's Greek phraseology. As far as I know, it's the only Greek phrases that are being used in, in what is really an all-Latin Mass. Um, and, and so the term itself, Kyrieleison, means Lord have mercy. And the song or the phrase goes, Lord have mercy. It says, Kyrieleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison. And so, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Variations of that, usually in a triplicate form, um, is what would have formed the song. And again, based on this very ancient prayer, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, they took it and made a popularized song, and, and yet there's still something deep behind that. On the road that I must travel, Lord, have mercy. And it's, a, it's, it's asking God to bless them. That's not how it got taken. It was Everyone else, I think, just saw it as something kind of funky and cool, and some of us thought it was lasers, so whatever the case was. It's rooted, though, as I said, in, in Scripture. Um, it's mostly part of the Eastern tradition within Christianity, but the scripture that's drawn to is, and I'll, I'll just put, I'm not going to put these up there, but just give you a, a flavor. Matthew 15, 22 is where Kyrieleison we see coming into play. There's this Canaanite woman who has a daughter who is demon-possessed, and she comes to Jesus, and she cries out and says, Have mercy on me, or Kyrieleison, um, O Lord, the son of David. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 15, there's a father this time who has a son who's having seizures, epilepsy, something of that nature that's causing him to be damaged and hurt at times, falling into the fire, etc. And so in Matthew 17, 5, we find Kyrieleison, Lord, have mercy on my son. Um, we find later in Scripture that um, this passage also becomes uh, what is a very significant passage 
um, with some people that are blind in Matthew chapter 20, verse 29 through 34. As they went out of Jericho, Jesus and the disciples, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Kyrie eleison. They said, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Um, the crowd rebukes them, telling them to be silent. Hey, you're kind of interrupting the flow. And there's times to be an order uh, of things. But in this case, they had a need, and they cried out all the more. They may have been blind, but they were not mute. And they leveraged their voices. And again, Kyrileson, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And then this next one, verse 34, says, and Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and and followed him. In mercy, in pity, in compassion, he heals them, and they then begin to follow him. Um, It's a very powerful passage of Scripture and phrase. One of the really, to me, most significant times when the Kyrieleison is used in Scripture is in Luke chapter 18. And Jesus is going to tell this parable. It says, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so he's dealing with the Pharisees who were a quasi-political religious group who um, very ostentatiously followed the law. They, They did religious things. But they did it to draw attention to themselves. It was an arrogance. It was a works-oriented type thing. Um, but people admired them for their you know, stout spiritualism and fasting and, and tithing and all the different things that were there. And, and it says here that, that they trusted themselves that they were righteous. And they treated others with contempt. This is a really important thing that we, that we don't fall into, that we don't become self-righteous or think that we stand by our good works or our own righteousness, but on anything other than the grace of God. And that in turn, we also don't raise contempt upon others or compare ourselves to others because that's not what we're being compared to in God's eyes. We're being compared to a holy and righteous God. But we try to leverage that by saying, well, I'm at least better than the guy. You know, it's the whole thing of, uh, of, of you know, lions coming and, and you got to turn around and run with your friend. And, and do you think you can outrun that? The friend says, no, but I can outrun you, you know, and that's all I have to do. The lion will get you. Or it's a comparative type element. But that's not what's happening. So anyways, he tells this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like, and he looks around the the gathering there and points over like this tax collector. They were very low on the social stance. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. In the temple area, you would have gone, as we said before, kind of um, up a series of steps and then gone through like a tunnel process like at a stadium, and then you would have come out onto the Temple Mount. The moment you come out to the Temple Mount, you're in a courtyard area. There would be the courtyard of the uh, Gentiles at one point, people who weren't Jewish. Um, If you were Jewish, you could go past that to the uh, temple that would have at least allowed for the women. And then beyond that, if you were a man, you could continue to go on to a courtyard that was of the men, and then that's as far as you go, unless you were a priest, then there was a, an area that you'd go as a priest. And then there's an area beyond that 
that, that was the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go in once a year and literally face the presence of God. And so they would have come up, they would have gone past certain areas there and, and seen this magnificent edifice of what it is, and they would have gone in and, and, and this guy is having his say and his comment, but in his prayers he's seeing his comparative and he points out to this tax collector who was the lowest on the social status. They would have been viewed even lower than prostitutes in that time period. Um, traitors to their own people in many ways. But they were caught between a rock and a hard place, between Rome and between having to make a living and all the rest. But the tax collector, standing far off, verse 13, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, Kyrileson, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Um, he does not plead his good works, but just look for God's mercy. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, Jesus says, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In a moment of time, near the conclusion of this service, we're going to take of communion together. And if you're not a follower of Christ, no problem. Just let it pass you by. This is not a party time. Let it pass you by. Don't, don't take of it. No problem with that. No issue with that. If you're a follower of Christ, you do not need to be a member of this church. You just need to be a follower of Christ. But if you are, you can join us in it. And all we would ask is there's going to be two little cups, plastic on the bottom is the bread, and on top is the, the wine or the juice. And I'm, we just take it, hold on to it, and we're going to take of it together, first the bread and then the cup. And we'll take that together um, at the uh, conclusion of this gathering. This element of communion this concept of what's called the Eucharist, also thanksgiving is a term for thanksgiving, is the central reoccurring theme that you'll find within Christianity. When we partake of this, we will be joining with individuals around the world of different nationalities, and for over the last 2,000 years and thousands of years before that in the Passover meal for the Jewish people, um, of, of a ceremony. It's a central aspect of every worship aspect of Christianity. There's really two key parts usually of, of worship in the ancient times. One would have been communion or Eucharist. The other one would have been the declaring of the Word of God. So this is a very deeply important and central theme. You, you may have a misunderstanding of Christianity, especially young people, if you look at what you see on TV as all these people who are angry and hateful and violent, and that's not Christianity. Or people who are self-righteous and arrogant, and that's not Christianity. Or people that are having wild parties at their churches mostly, and flashing lights and all the rest of the things, and we come just to be uplifted and encouraged, and it's okay to come uplifted and encouraged, but the central theme of Christianity is what we see right here. To have you understand this deeper, I want to take you to another song while we keep Kyrielason in our minds. There is another song out there that was rooted in a movie. It is one of the all-time great movies, and um, maybe some of the, the, the quotes from it you might bring you to an awareness of what it is. One of the quotes is, we'll always have Paris. Another time it talks about rounding up the usual suspects. Another time it said, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship at the end of the movie. Um, near the beginning of the movie, the one man turns and says, of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. And at the conclusion, he says to the other heroine, or to the heroine, the, the hero says, here's looking at you. I don't do a good Bogart. Kid. What's the name of the movie? Casablanca. 
is the name of the movie. And for those of you who have never seen the movie, you need to get out more and educate yourself, okay? <laughs> it is one of the all-time classic movies. Well, this is a 1940s movie. Yes, it's a 1940s movie. They can make good things that predate your existence, okay? It's a great movie. It was written in wartime and is about the war, so it has all the more impact when you realize this was happening before we knew the conclusion to World War II. But one of the things I found recently about this movie that is fascinating to me is that there's a song in here, and those of you who would remember the song, you should, the title of the song is As Time Goes By. You must remember this, a kiss is just a kiss, a sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. Well, here's the interesting thing. Max Steiner was the music director on this uh, um, movie. And by the time he got in on the movie, they had already um, determined that this song was going to be in the movie. In fact, the star, I think it was Ingrid Bergman, um, had done a little da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And, and she'd done it, and they'd already filmed that portion. And they were continuing to film the movie, but they'd filmed that so it was locked in because she'd already gone on to do another film, and her hair had been cut, and they couldn't bring her back in to redo it. Well, here's the thing. Max Steiner hated this song. Absolutely hated the song. Did not want to use it, but they had no choice. They were now stuck having to use this song. Well, here's the brilliance of this man. Since he's stuck with a song he doesn't particularly like, he took it and turned it into something that is referred to as a leitmotif. Now, a leitmotif um, means basically something that is um, a melody uh, it can be a symbol, it can be a phrase, it can be a, uh, a, a sound or a symbol that comes back again and again within a particular story. And so he turned it into a leitmotif, this short, reoccurring musical phrase. And it's usually associated with an idea or something that keeps moving. And so if you go back and watch the movie, you'll find that song coming in like about 10 different times with different feelings. When it's a flashback to Paris, there's a, a sense of weightiness behind it. When it's in the, the bar, it's kind of whimsical and light. And then there's other points where it has a sense of drama behind it, and he kept changing it. But the song is woven throughout the place. Now, here's the thing. The issue of repentance, the issue of our need for salvation and grace is not something that we love the arrogance within us militates against it. But it is woven throughout Christianity. God has chosen this as a leitmotif of this pervasive theme song of repentance, brokenness, approach to God in grace that we find throughout. Incidentally, side note, if you're in trivia, the shortest leitmotif in movies and probably the most famous one is the Jaws theme. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. It's only two, two, two lines there. But you know, whenever that's played, you better get out of the water. <laughs> okay. There's a theme there. And you know when that comes, oh, there's something going on. The thing with communion is it's woven throughout. It links us together, the sacrifice of Christ. And though it has to do with our sin, it has a lot more to do with Christ's mercy and grace to us than it does our sin. That's how a recognition of death becomes a celebration or a thanksgiving. 
because the focus is now taken off of our sin and on to God's mercy and grace. In fact, the term mercy itself needs to be defined. It's a medieval Latin term, merced or merces, which means price paid. Price paid. When God extends his mercy to us, the price has been paid for our sins. It has the connotation of forgiveness, benevolence, and kindness. Scripture says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yes, we're all accepted by God, but not without repentance. There's something between us and God that has to be resolved. And I don't care if you are um, Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Everyone needs to repent. And if they don't understand or recognize that, then they are in darkness. We need to repent. We need to come before God. And this is the underlying theme or lay motif that we find throughout Scripture. It's entered into our um, law courts. When the judge, uh, for centuries now, in Western civilization, is condemning someone to death, the sentence is to be given out, and, and they're finally hearing the final thing, then what do they say? They, they say the sentence, and then they say, may God have mercy on your soul. And we think, oh, it's just a little prayer for their soul. No, it's actually rooted in rabbinical law back in the time of Israel when they would have used that phrase and that approach to attribute God as the highest authority in the land, that he is the final law. He is the final one to whom all things must bow to and bend to. And so this recognition of our repentance but also of God's mercy that the price has been paid for our sin. With this then can actually come a degree of joy than enters in. It's more about what we say his grace and his mercy than it is our sinfulness. And so there's an expression of joy that finally comes into this as we're acknowledging that it's not our works, but it's God's grace. And because of that, we can have a joy about that. And so, yes, there's repentance, there's brokenness, there's that somberness, but there's also celebration. So in the South, they have different phrases. And one of those that, that is used, we've said before, is, you know, um, bless your heart, which is basically a nice way of saying, you know, drop dead, okay? <laughs> so if you're ever in the South and they tell you that to it, they don't really want to bless your heart. They're saying you're annoying, obnoxious, go back up North, Okay. But there's another phrase that's often used in the South as well, too, that's actually more positive and rooted in biblicalness. You get a promotion at work or something positive happens, they say, Lord, have mercy. Um, get a good grade on a paper, Lord, have mercy. I almost got hit by a car, but I didn't get hit by the car that ran the red light. Lord, have mercy. And it's a celebration of salvation in that context. It's an expression of joy for blessings received. It's almost like it's too good to believe. Lord, have mercy. And so we are offering God thanks for mercy in this song and this prayer, not trying to buy it. We're not trying to gain it. In fact, there's a recognition that nothing we can do will ever be enough for that. But God's mercy overcomes things for us. I had a conversation recently with... Um, a friend of mine, we were talking in regards to uh, David and um, the whole issue of sin and forgiveness. And in Ephesians chapter 2, we're told that if you're dead in the trespasses of sins in which you once walked, and following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work, and the sons of disobedience, 
among all who lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's real heavy. But then it says, verse 4, but God, so you were all this messed up, all of us, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By grace. And so this friend of mine was saying, well, if we're by grace and saved, then, and, and then, you know, what we do doesn't really matter, then does it? And it's like, no, it does matter. Well, well, David, David's like a man after God's own heart. Look at the horrible things he did and kept doing. And I said, actually, he didn't keep doing it. He actually learned from his mistakes and didn't um, continue on with them. And David has a horrible thing. He commits adultery, and then when the woman becomes pregnant, he tries to cover it up, and it's one of his soldiers, so he brings him back and tries to get him drunk to be with his wife, but he's so faithful he won't do any of that. So he sends him back to the front and then tells the lead commander, says, yeah, when it's really tough there, pull the guys away, leave him by himself. He's like, are you sure? He says, yeah, I want him dead. And so he commits murder, in essence, by remote control for this man after which he takes Bathsheba as his wife and continues on until Nathan the prophet confronts him. And as he confronts him, David has an opportunity at that moment to kill the prophet. He has an opportunity at that moment to continue on, to cover up, to, to blast through it, and he doesn't. And the unique thing with David is that he breaks down in that moment of time. Even though he's king and has all power and everything else in that moment, he actually backs away from that. And he accepts, no, I, di I did that. That would have been one thing, but he goes even deeper. He has an insight that no one of his time period had. See, up until those times, you would sacrifice an animal. You had to face your sin. You'd come to the priest. You'd bring an animal. They'd slit the throat of the animal. Blood would pour everywhere. They would kill this thing, cut it up, and then burn it as a sacrifice. And so that's your sin. That's supposed to be you. It's not you, but it could have been you, and it should have been you. But this animal, bloody, that's your sin. And so they had to face it in those days. This went on for centuries and millennia, all pointing towards Christ as that final lamb that was going to come once and for all to pay for all the sins. It all pointed towards that. And David has a brilliant insight. While everyone else is satisfied just killing their animal and then continuing on with their sin, only come back and get forgiveness again later, or whatever the case is, David's realizing, no, I need to change my ways. I'm never going to do this thing again. And then he has particular insight in Psalm chapter 51, the one he writes about his repentance, a song he wrote. And the 51st Psalm at one point comes into the 15th verse says, Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. It's a brutal takedown in front of himself in, in the first portion of it. It's a brutal takedown of his sin. But then it comes and says, Open my mouth, my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice in this place, or I'd bring it. I'd get a hundred lambs right now and throw them into the pit. You don't delight in that, do you, God? You don't take pleasure, really, in these burnt offerings. He may not catch on of where it points to, but he knows this is not what pleases God. He says, my sacrifice or the sacrifice that you desire, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. He has an insight no one else has. The sacrifice that God really wants is transformation of ourselves. It's repentance. It's brokenness. It's a contrite heart. We like our arrogance. We like our heroes boasting. We like our political figures to be mean, nasty, and ugly. We love it. 
when they put down the libs or when they slam the conservatives or whoever your hero is. We think it's so great when these guys trash talk up and right and they can do this stuff. We love it. But God says that's not the way of Christ and it's not to be the way of the Christian and we should not exalt in those things. Especially in the public realm. He says it's a broken, contrite heart. It's something simple. It's supposed to be a completely different approach. And this leads us to the third song, which actually is the title of this series. When I said more than a song, that's rooted in a song called The Heart of Worship. We've sung it in this church before, and most of you know the history, but let me take a moment on it. It was back in the 1990s. Yeah, the 1900s. Okay, way back. Way back in the dark ages. And, and in the 1900s and the 1990s, and even to this day, England has increasingly become non-Christian or, or opposed to Christianity. But there are churches that rose up in that time. And there was a real revival of worship music. Some of the richest worship music we have today is coming out of the deeply oppressed English churches. And one of the bands that was really hot in that time was based around a church called Soul Survivor. And its leader was Matt Redman. And they were putting out some fantastic worship songs and they were making albums and they were being picked up nationally, even internationally. And they got caught up with the worship and the expression of it, but they began to realize something was missing. He says there was a dynamic missing at one point in time, we realized. The band had become more important and the music more important than the Word of God or the table of the Lord or anything else. He says, so the pastor did a pretty brave thing. He decided to get rid of the sound system and the band for a season. Now, I doubt they got rid of the sound system. They probably just turned it off, I would think. And for the band, they just sat them down. And we gathered together with just our voices, the whole church. His point was that we'd lost our way in worship, and the way to get back to the heart would be to strip everything away, reminding his church family to be producers in worship, not just consumers. The pastor asked, Quote, when you come through the doors on a Sunday, what are you bringing as an offering to God? It's a biblical posture in worship that speaks of reverence, of a people who faced up to the glory of God and found themselves face down in worship. What do you bring? This morning, Jake brought, well, that's his giftings and his skill set, fine. But you can bring your heart, you can bring your prayers, you can bring your spirit whatever gifts you bring. And so they sat back and and just cut out the music of the sound system. And they just gathered and let God speak in the moment. And this is the song that came out of it entitled The Heart of Worship. When the music fades, all is stripped away. And I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. And the chorus, I'll bring you more than a song For a song in itself is not what you've required any more than you have sacrifice. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it when it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I've said it before, I'll say it again. This is never a stage. It may be a platform for speaking, but it is never a stage. 
we up here are not performers. We are pastors, but never, ever performers. And you, you are never an audience passively observing. You are to be a congregation gathered around a common table, a theme that runs through of repentance and mercy and grace and forgiveness. And when that's really at the center of things, then we hear the prophet Isaiah's voice as God speaks to him and says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Isaiah chapter 1. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll become like wool. And the imagery there of the scarlet and of the crimson is like the blood-stained hands of a murderer. And so what he's saying there is though you, are, you have the bloodstained hands of a murderer, you are that sinful and corrupt, don't hide it from me. Come with those bloodstained hands, that crimson, that scarlet. And he says they'll be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they'll become like white wool. And we know, Michigan, we know snow. And we know that when there's that heavy Snowfall. You look out your backyard or out the front there when nothing else has yet moved upon it and you see that blanket of white that covers everything. It covers it all. God says, come to the table. Though you have bloody hands of a murderer, it'll be as white as snow. Kyrie Lord have mercy. Two men go up to the temple. They would have come up that the stairway of that 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 corridor. They would have come up onto the temple mount, and they would immediately see this fantastic edifice that would have risen up, and, and they would have gone together past the courts of the Gentiles. Being men, they would have gone past the courts of women, something that since the grace of God has come, breaks even that and takes us back before the fall when men and women were equal, before the brokenness and sinfulness of the fall put us at each other's throats and, and denigrated one of the sexes or the other. But they would have gone past the courts of women. They would have gone to the courts of men, but they could go no further at that point in time. It wasn't until Christ came and his sacrifice tore the Holy of Holies uh, veil apart that that access was there, but they would have walked up and the one man just talks about his works. <laughs> God, I thank you, I am so good. I am so great and I'm so much better than that one and that one and that one, and especially that sleaze bag leaning against the pillar around the corner. But the other man doesn't talk about his works. He walks up and he sees the temple he walks past the Gentiles and past the women, but not with arrogance or with boastfulness. He walks amongst the other men and maybe even pulls off to the side there. He doesn't talk about his works. Instead, he just says, Kyrieleison, Lord, have mercy on me. And he declares himself a sinner. And Jesus says, that man walks away justified. This morning, we're going to take of communion together. I'm going to ask that you would hold the bread and the cup until we would take it together. And as we are 
preparing to do this. There is a more modern version of Kyrieleison that is going to be played for us. And in this, you will hear the leitmotif. You will hear the reoccurring theme of brokenness and repentance and crying out. But you should also hear an undercurrent of joy because it's not so much about our sin as it is his mercy and grace, that the price is paid. If you are a follower of Christ, let this be a reminder of the central theme of faith. If you are not a follower of Christ, then this morning, let it pass you by, or better yet, take the moment now to acknowledge your sinfulness before God. Repent of that moment. Lean into God's grace provided by Jesus Christ, that one sacrifice for all time, offered on the cross and proven by his resurrection. As you repent and lay those things down and accept his grace, you too can become a follower of Christ and join us in this thing today. So Father, this morning we come before you. Prepare our hearts and our minds. Remove all distractions, God. And like that penitent of centuries back, like the woman whose daughter had a need, the, the father whose husband had a need, the blind men who cried out, and the tax collector who just in the corner. We take up this ancient chant, this ancient song today, and while we put it in English, this morning we cry out to you, Kyrie son, Lord, have mercy. We come before your face in Jesus' name.
Scripture tells us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, that he gathered with his disciples and he inaugurated something that was going to continue for thousands of years. He took a piece of bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, Lord, this morning we receive from your hand the bread of life. Shall we? Then he took a cup and he filled it with wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Without the shedding of blood, without the sacrifice, there is no forgiveness of sin. And while this sacrifices have been going on for centuries, including the Passover time, all this was to point to this one single moment that in just a few hours, he says, I will fulfill. This is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Don't ever forget. And so, Lord, this morning we receive from your hand. Amen, shall we? And let us stand.
Kyrie Eliasson. Lord, have mercy. The central theme of our faith. Christians are not arrogant and boastful. They're not angry and violent. They're the ones who say, Lord, have mercy on me. And then revel in that mercy and grace and want to extend that to others. So this week, when you sit down to your keyboard, before you click something out that will blow the entire internet up, think about it. Before you react harshly to that coworker or boss or family member who's trashing you over your faith or a position you take for faith, stop for a moment and remember the mercy that God's extended to you. We are to be the most graceful people on the planet. It doesn't mean we can't be bold and that we cannot be strong, but never arrogant, never violent. That's the way of the Pharisee, not the way of Christ. And then this last thing, when you have a really great thing happen in your life, don't forget his mercy. When that promotion comes through or that blessing or that relationship, whatever it is, maybe stop for a minute and get real Southern. Just say, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. I never saw that coming. Lord, have mercy. Realize his grace. Father, I pray that as we conclude this series next week, and even as we go into this week now, God, that you would guide us and strengthen us in your ways. And let us be ever conscious of your mercy and grace, I pray. We lay these things before your feet and we give you true, genuine thanksgiving. We just praise you today. In the name of Jesus Christ and the church said, amen.